Greetings, my name is Mike Bankhead. I am your host. I am a bass player and songwriter from Dayton, Ohio. On today's episode, we go to the greater Atlanta area. That's right, all the way down south of Georgia. And this conversation is with Franklin J. Raybon, a man of many interests. We're going to talk about college football. We're going to talk about baseball. We're going to talk about music. It's an interesting conversation today on... The You Could Be My Aramis podcast. I met Franklin primarily because in the past he used to write about baseball. You'll hear that story shortly. Let's get to the conversation, shall we? Hello there, Franklin. Hello. Let's start by having you tell the kind people who are listening where you might be from. I am in Peachtree City, Georgia which is a kind of distant suburb of Atlanta. And I've lived in Atlanta for the last uh, Atlanta area, and specifically Atlanta for most of it, but uh, for the last, what, 12 years now? And I'm originally from Augusta, Georgia. You know, that's the where to everything. How many I'm green sure jackets we'll do you to... own? You're from Augusta. They give those out, I right? own zero green jackets. Although I've been to the Masters many times, but I do own zero green jackets. And I played the course once. I'm kind of jealous. How was it? I mean, it was pretty much exactly what you would expect. The greens aren't as fast as they are in the tournament, but they're still like the fastest greens you would have ever played. But it is nice because the ball rolls more true so you don't like have those putts where you actually hit the ball decently and then it just jumps sideways because you know you're at some crappy public course so everything rolls really true but then every now and again you just accidentally put it 80 feet by the hole so (laughs) i did not play from the back tees i played from like the standard tees i was 18 at the time it was actually my 18th birthday present i was 16 over par, which was really just a couple of holes. Um, at a time, I was usually, I was, I played golf in high school. I was usually, you know, three to four or five over par was like my normal on a normal course. 10, I had like an eight and a couple other just blow up holes. I think 15, I had an, like another eight or something like that. No, probably 15, I probably had like a 10 or something like that. So, but yeah, I mean, I did make a couple of birdies. Um, I made a par on 12, the the famous hole. So that was, you know, and that one, like the, all the tees are pretty much right in the same there. So I'm like, yeah, I made a par on that hole. And you see all these, you know, famous players make quadruple bogeys or whatever, but I could have also just easily went sideways in a hurry there. But anyway. That was my story of playing at Augusta. So that's awesome. My my dad was an avid golfer, and I wish he was alive so that he could hear that because it's one of those places he would have probably committed armed robbery to play. Do you remember? Yeah, how, yeah. Do you remember how we met? I mean, I remember, but I want to. This is this this these kind of stories are always entertaining to hear from two different angles. All right. So I mean, I know it had to do with the Capitol Avenue Club blog indeed and 
I'm believing it was we interacted on Twitter. I know we met up one time, but I believe that was much after we just were conversing through Twitter. I don't yep. remember the specific Twitter interaction though. That was well, the I mean, genesis. Nobody remembers Twitter interactions because <laughs> and actually that's probably good. If if you remember a Twitter interaction, something terrible has probably happened. But right. yeah, you used to be a writer for Capital Avenue Club, which is no longer a thing. So let me explain to the listeners what that is. That was a, a blog centered around my favorite professional baseball team and Franklin's favorite professional baseball team, the Atlanta National League Baseball Club. Uh, I believe Capital Avenue must have been where their headquarters was or something, perhaps. Um, yeah, uh, the old stadium's address was at Capital Avenue. Yeah. Okay. And I, I never got a chance to visit the old stadium because I'm an Ohioan. And by the time I started traveling to baseball games, it was no longer with us. But I, I did go to games at uh, Turner Park when mm -hmm. it was a thing. So this particular baseball blog was, uh, shall we say, cybermetrically friendly. In other words, lean toward objective. I think Capitol Avenue was like very safe. I, I would say it was a saber blog, so yeah. to speak. Um, some of the stuff we did after I would say was more saber friendly than, but I'd say, you know, especially in the beginning, Capitol Avenue was almost exclusively. And for those who don't know, saber metrics is like very in-depth statistical analysis of baseball and like, you know, the stereotypical, I guess, Moneyball would be the kind of thing that most people would identify with that. Um, although it's not exactly the same thing, but, you know, since they made that movie with Brad Pitt, I guess that's probably the most culturally relevant touch song. But it's, it's how most teams run these days is using yep. those tools although way more advanced than anything we had any access to. So. Yeah, I mean, the teams aren't going to share their proprietary processes, right? Uh, right, broadly, and, and we don't have, you know, stat, like even if we wanted to recreate it, you know, they're spending millions and millions of dollars to do it versus, you know, us, it's like five guys and one uh, girl in their spare time, like running stuff in spreadsheets. And they've got like, full-time staff, so people who work 80 hours a week. So, Yeah, so if you watch baseball and you hear people on broadcast talking about analytics, and usually they do so negatively, which is a crying shame, uh, that's essentially what this is. It's analysis of baseball using objective things that you can prove. Baseball has been around long enough, and there's only so many things that can happen. I don't want to get too deep into base out scenarios because I'm going to lose people, but essentially it's objective analysis of the things that can happen in a baseball game and what helps you win versus what doesn't. But the people who wrote the site were also fans of the Atlanta National League Baseball Club. So I enjoyed visiting it. I enjoyed reading mm -hmm. it. Franklin would generally write very intelligent things. And I happen to like smart people, which is why I opened the dialogue with him on Twitter. And then I flew to Atlanta for a concert and thought, you know what? I could meet Franklin face to face. And we hung out and had some drinks and, and then had some more drinks. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good yeah, time. Good times. So I, now, like I do remember with... that and remember the exact bar and everything. So. Yeah. I remember there was a, <laughs> there was a, there was a newscaster award ceremony in town and a bunch of news broadcasters were there also getting hammered. And I remember talking <laughs> to a guy that was a news broadcaster and looked just like you would expect a news broadcaster to look like 
perfectly manicured and quaffed and it, it was it was yeah. an interesting experience so i like to start with baseball because dear lord the the atlanta national league baseball club are the champions yeah it's great it's insane like i for i'll for i'll go like periods of time just forgetting that it happened i mean especially with the lockout going right now uh-huh. um i think it makes it easier to forget um and then i'll be like oh yeah they won this year and then of course you got i personally got a ton of reminders last because like everybody here's like can you believe the braves and you won the world series and uga won the college football national championship in the same season which is nutty yeah like that that which, you know, anybody who's from this area can tell you that those are the, you know, teams that people by far kind of care, care the most about. Um, the Falcons kind of comes and goes in people's minds, I think, but the Braves are pretty steady. Um, and then UGA is like a religion here, unless you happen to subscribe to another college football religion because you went there or something. But yeah, to, to like in my neighborhood, there's probably... 10 different UGA flags. And I mean, my neighborhood's only like 30 houses um, and probably 10 of them have gig- and not just like little flags on their door, like gigantic, like six foot by three foot or four foot or whatever flags flying. Have these people been barking recently? No, this is a little bit higher class area than that. Okay. Um, so well, they probably good. only do it when they get trashed. And I do like one thing, like my wife is a UGA grad and UGA grads are very different than like some of the UGA fans you see. And I think that's true for almost every college. You know, the most sort of rabid fans a lot of times aren't, you know, UGA grads. You know, they're more just... You know, they they're the quote unquote local team. So yeah. Um it just is a kind of a different like I'm a, I went to South Carolina um for college and I don't like most of our fans. They just kind of annoy me. So kind of is what it is with college football, I guess. Yeah. And anyone up here that's been anywhere near Columbus on a football Saturday can understand what the football ass religion things means. Right. Yeah. You're you kind of have like you guys up there it's like they're a little it's a little more spread out in the sense of like you know, I, I mean i guess this year obviously you had cincinnati the only people that like really... them live in cincinnati <laughs> trust me right right yeah well it's also funny because you know most cincinnati fans are also ohio state fans in my experience and there, it may have recently changed there's a subset um, but it would be that like hate to, hate to hear people say that though there's a subset of cincinnati fans that has a big chip on their shoulder as regards to the ohio state university right yeah yeah so yeah it's kind of a weird little sub dynamic like you know it's kind of like on a different level but it's kind of like here you have georgia southern and people will go there and they'll be georgia southern fans but they're also uga fans um because it's just like on a totally different level. Yeah, they're not going to play so, probably ever. Right. So. And and Ohio State like kind of like acts like in some sense that's what Cincinnati is, but then they made it to the playoff this year. <laughs> yeah, it's I I kind of like to see it cuz yeah. I like all the Ohio State. Not the same old teams. Successful. Not the not the same old teams. And you know, the coach 
there at Cincinnati. He's an Ohio State alum, and he is mm-hmm. pretty well beloved among Ohio State fan circles. So I don't think, right. in, and at least in at least Ohio State fandom, there's not any animosity towards Cincinnati. Um, mm-hmm. I think Cincinnati wishes that the Buckeyes would come play them in their own stadium, and there is no right. universe. There's no universe where that's happening because they don't have enough seats. So, well, it's not even just. It's also just. Ohio State really doesn't have anything to gain by no, it. No, nothing at all to gain um, by it. If they had it a hundred thousand seat stadium, then maybe. I think the last time the Buckeyes played a quote road game there, it was in the NFL stadium in town, Paul Brown, which seats like right. seventy thousand or whatever. But you're right. Like, well, even then, I think like it's like, oh, if Ohio if Ohio State wins, it's like, oh, big whoop, who cares? And if they lose, it's like this huge negative mark. I'll never so hear the end of it. Aside, Right. Putting aside the like stadium requirements, it's, you know, you're in a lose-lose situation in that scenario. Yeah. I wanted to talk about baseball. We talked about college football, but we both, we both love college football. Um, I used to like reading college football tweets. You know, I grew up here in the Midwest and when I was a kid, there wasn't quite as much sports coverage, right? So college football mm-hmm. is, is, of course, a regional sport, but it was even more regional before we had the kind of national TV coverage. So mm-hmm. I was probably in my early 20s before I realized that, for instance, the Auburn-Alabama game is important to some people and the South Carolina-Clemson <laughs> game is important to some people. Because if you're a college football fan and you grow up in the Midwest, there is one rivalry, and it's the game. <laughs> And there are other smaller rivalries like Minnesota, Wisconsin, and mm. Indiana, Purdue, and the Rose Bowl is the most important thing on earth. And yeah, and was, then you have the Notre Dame people. Nobody likes the Notre Dame people. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about the South, but like nobody in Big Ten country likes the Notre Dame people. Right. And then, you know, you get older and more games are on TV and you're like, wow, there's a whole lot. What do you mean other people don't think the Rose Bowl is important? But I like it. I think the more football, the better. And I kind of enjoy getting a glimpse into the way different pockets of the country celebrate their local fandom because it's mm-hmm. we're all pretty different, but it's one of the things that kind of ties us all together. I like it. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, yeah it's interesting because, you know, the Southeast has always been, you know, a really big thing, but it's also always been a really big thing like you're saying in the Midwest, the Northeast to a little bit of an extent, um, but not as much. I mean, they do have, you know, Penn State, obviously, um, and a few other teams here, but it's not as big as, say, in the Midwest. But, and then out West, you know, it's always been big, but they're, like you're saying, they're kind of always separated. The thing that kind of changed all of that was, you know, the SEC expanding and then getting that championship game Yep. Which then brought in so much additional money. And then it, that's when it kind of like started to dawn on people like, we can make a crazy amount of money televising this. And then everything sort of changed from there. And I think really, I mean, the SEC was always successful and the Southern Conference before it, but really kind of that moment was where from there is where we are now. What as soon as the SEC got a couple more teams to where they were allowed to have an extra championship game, kind of set off that domino effect of the mega conferences, championship games, and then now to this day, playoff. You know, so it's definitely been interesting to watch, um, you know, because South Carolina was one of the two teams where I went that came into the SEC. and um, The ACC, right? 
Yeah, well, or they were the- independent for a minute. Um, and then we kind of realized being independent wasn't going to work because we didn't have Notre Dame straw. But yeah, we were a founding member of the ACC. We were in the Southern Conference before like when the SEC existed. Then we went to the ACC, then we were independent. Um, there was a stint of the Metro Conference as well with Florida State. Uh, but we were independent and then came into the um, SEC with Arkansas. 92. Um, yeah. And then that was what – then they were allowed to have a championship game after that. Um, so it's kind of – and that was – I was, what, 10 then. So I was kind of like really starting to understand what sports meant in some sense other than just people playing on the screen. So it's been really interesting to watch that all play out. I sometimes still think that Arkansas is a weird fit for that. I mean, I think South Carolina is a great fit for the SEC, but I'm like, again, I'm dating myself. I'm old enough to remember the Southwest Conference and the Big Eight. So, right. Yeah. Well, it's kind of been weird um, because Arkansas, the state has changed, become much more Southern since that point. Um, You know, I think these days, Arkansas as a state, and maybe the football has something to do with it because it's just, believe it or not, that important. But also, I think it's just a general sort of cultural shift in the lower Midwest has started to kind of like identify more as Southeast than Midwest. There were, used to be a time when Arkansas was considered, you know, a purple state, um, you know, for talking politics. And now it's like redder than a lot of Southeastern states. It's been kind of interesting to watch that change as well. Like, you know, you don't, Arkansas people don't, even though they're much closer to Texas than Georgia, um, it's kind of like they culturally almost identify with the Southeast more now, in my experience at least. But they're also probably Braves fans. Yeah. You know, because, and that's kind of the weird thing about being a Braves fan is like you get all these pockets of places that just don't have teams. Like, if you're in Arkansas, it's not like they showed Astros games. No. But, you know, in the during the heyday of TBS, you see Braves games. So if you lived in an area that didn't have a state team, so to speak, you know, a lot of times they would become Braves fans. So, yeah, Arkansas, heavy Braves fan. And maybe, again, that might have some aspect to do with the entire state sort of culturally seeming a bit more southern than Midwestern. Um, and I think some of it's like hunting as well um, is bigger in Arkansas than it is in, say, I mean, it's big in Michigan and Ohio, don't get me wrong, but I think it's probably bigger in Arkansas than it. So it's kind of like a lot of little seemingly insignificant, unrelated things kind of all come together. Um, and the Braves being one, you know, you have all these people who for years are rooting for an Atlanta team. And I think that kind of seeps into every aspect how often have you gotten a chance to go catch the braves on the road not a whole lot it's just i've never actually planned a trip to do that so when i've gone to other stadiums it's the braves just didn't happen to be in town like usually my process would be something like okay we're going to go to san francisco this is when the time works for us this is the team that just happens to be in town that day and as much as I'm a Braves fan, I also I think there's a part of me that sort of enjoyed 
getting out of that when I'm seeing that sort of environment, because it allowed me to sort of take in the whole stadium without being so invested in the game, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I actually, now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen the Braves play on the road. I may be forgetting, but I, I don't think I have. I think that I've only ever seen them at home. The reason I've asked so, is, you know, I'm a Braves fan and I'm, an Ohioan born and raised, which should make mm-hmm. me a Reds fan, but I'm one of those kids that grew up with TBS in the house and they were on mm-hmm. like every night. Right. I listened to skip Carey and Pete Van Weeren and Ernie Johnson every night mm-hmm. on TV. And you know that, but I've seen them often on the road and I'm like you, I'll go to a, if we're going in a, into a city just to visit it, we'll go to a baseball game, whether the Braves are there or not. I just love seeing other stadiums. And I like to get there really early for batting practice and then take my time looking into the nooks and crannies of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. But the Braves tend to have pretty decent fan support everywhere they go, in, in my experience. Right. And that's a TBS thing, surely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Cubs are the same way, I think, because yeah. of the WGN. And then the Yankees are that way just because the Yankees um, – but yeah, I, I've definitely I, you you can notice that even a lot of times you don't notice it as much as when you're in person, I'm sure. But um, you know, you can notice that even just watching the games. But like whenever the Cubs come into town, it's probably forty percent. And if the Braves are doing well, it's forty percent Cubs fans. The Braves are not doing well. I've seen it even be like this seems half and half to me. Yeah. Um, and I think Cubs. some of that's, you know, Chicago just being a bigger city. Yep. And, you know, there for a while, it took a special sort of uh, willingness to endure abuse to be a Cubs fan because they were hapless for so many years before they finally got their title recently. Right. Yeah. Do you have a favorite ballpark? And I feel like that always likes in certain teams like that makes a more loyal fan base. And I don't even necessarily think that's a good thing, but, you know, not to bring it back to college football, but University of South Carolina lost every game for two straight years one time. Like, we tore down the goalposts when we beat New Mexico State. Yikes. So, like, but we would still have 75,000, 80,000 people at every game in the middle of, like, losing, you know, 21 consecutive games. And I, I think to a certain extent, the Cubs were that way. They're not as much. And I think the success kind of like, you know, obviously it's a pro, but it does, I think, take away. Like now they don't show up if they start losing, whereas it used to be, uh, what's his name? J.C. Bradbury. He's a econometric or he's an economic professor who writes about baseball. So he does a lot of sabermetric stuff. He did this thing one time, and this was, I believe, before the Cubs won the World Series, and he showed that fan attendance was more highly correlated to beer prices at Wrigley Park than it was wins and losses. (laughs) That's hilarious. So it's like, you can lose 90 games, but if you raise the price of beer from $1.50 to $2, we are protesting. Midwesterners like beer. I mean, some stereotypes are true. Do you do you have a favorite ballpark? I, I really liked what AT&T Park uh, in San Francisco. And then um, most of them have like their own pros and cons. I tend to not like the really generic 
newer ones. I don't love the new Braves Park. I mean, there are parts about it I like, but it just seems they could have done more with it um, as far as having character. But maybe that'll come over time. Um, but then again, Turner Field didn't have the most character either. So, And a lot, I think a lot of the character from the Braves Stadium before then, uh, old Fulton County Stadium, was just like you could visually picture Hank Aaron, you know, breaking the record there. So or it had nothing really to do with the stadium. Or Otis Nixon, Otis Nixon making that catch. Yeah, yeah, just those moments. So, you know, a lot of times I think, you know, the moments can end up making the character later. Um, oh, uh, um, Camden Yards in Baltimore I always have really liked. Um, it was sort of the original of this, like, current style yep. that they're doing now. But I think people sort of copied the basic idea of the style, but haven't executed as well there. Um, I haven't been to Petco Park, but I always thought it looks really cool on TV, but I'd have to go there to be, you know, to see it. The times I've gone to San Diego, there weren't games there. So Uh, me too. I walked around. If I had to pick one, I would probably say AT&T in San Francisco. If I had to pick one, I haven't made it there yet. It's, it's on, it's on my list. I, yeah, my, just the, the bay being right there is just such a cool aspect. Like, depending on, you know, where you're standing, saying, so you, like, you look to the right and there's the bay, the left, they're playing baseball. And it's, like, so much closer than you really, like, get it. Like, on TV, you know that they can hit it into the water, but you don't, like, it really is, like, just past the fence is the water. I'm, I'm hoping to get there someday. They're, the ones on my list is that one like the ones I haven't been to that one in Petco and I haven't been to Baltimore and you might think I'm crazy for this, but I really want to see the Kaufman in, in Kansas city. I know they've done some remodeling there. And it looks yeah. pretty on TV. And is that the same? Have they changed stadium since Bo Jackson's times? No, they just, yeah, that's they, what they I was just, thinking. So, they yeah, just I made it look prettier. I would, so I would go there and I would immediately see Bo Jackson running up the wall. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, we have nothing against that. If you can swing it, I, I recommend Pittsburgh because that's my personal favorite. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a river out there on right field and you got to hit it a lot farther to get it into that river than at San Francisco, <laughs> but it's doable. And the view of the mm-hmm. city from anywhere in the ballpark is just spectacular. And then right, yeah. the year before the pandemic, so I, that's those 2019, I got to Coors Field for the first time. And the first thing I noticed was it's really big. And I know everyone says that on TV, right? Mm-hmm. But like in person, right. in person, you're like, oh, this is what they mean by there's so much more outfield space. Because there's just a ton of outfield space. It's really weird. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's like they, they've finally gotten it to the point where there's not really even more home runs there. But it's still easier to hit in because even though you hit about the same amount of home runs, it's like the outfield's just gigantic, so you can your the batting averages are still through the roof there. Yeah, unless you got three Andrew Joneses in your outfield, there's going to be a lot of doubles and triples hit at that ballpark. Right. So tell the folks what you have behind you there and what kind of room you're in. Oh, um, well, so that's a moving blanket because oh, it wasn't I'm me. I, I meant the pretty things. <laughs> oh, um, with the six strings. Yeah, I wasn't sure what all you could see in the view. So, yeah, um, I play guitar um, and just a little 
blues rock type band. Uh, these are the three guitars I just happen to have down. One's a little resonator guitar. Uh, the red one here is the one that's actually really nice and kind of expensive. That one I put together from a bunch of different parts, um, the Strat, so the kind of gold one. But I really liked how it came out. But um, I've kind of over the years, it's kind of the uh, the ship of, uh, I keep wanting to say Theseus, but I don't think that's right. You know what I'm Theseus? talking about. Yeah. Um, ship. So, because like I had a body that was some of these parts wrong. Then I bought new pickups put that on that. Then I changed the neck out. Then I changed the body out. So this guitar, I think maybe like literally one, like I think this screw right here is the only original part of this guitar. That's hilarious. <laughs> and Franklin, Everything to describe it, Frank was pointing out the neck or the headstock where the two oh, yeah, are. So, yeah, but um, yeah, I play guitar. So, uh, and I'm here in my little, rehearsal space slash recording studio um it's kind of slowly turning actually into more of a recording studio i've had some other bands besides my band in to record recently um so that was really interesting and fun how long you been playing guitar um well really depends on how you count um i've had a guitar since i was probably 13 but i didn't actually like i'd maybe play a couple of chords um and then uh let's see five six years ago i started getting pretty serious about like hey i actually want to learn how to do this um so that was when i would say i started playing guitar versus like the way that every before that it was like every kind of guy my age knows how to play two guitar two chords on a guitar so that's kind of where I was before then. Um, and then maybe five years ago, I kind of got where like I really would, you know, practice every night type thing. What made you make that choice? Like what, what motivated you to, to say to yourself, I want to be better at this instrument and really play well? It just was something I just wanted to start doing. Like it was like so. I can tend to be like at times pretty over analytical about things, but then sometimes I'm pretty good at just being like, Hey, I sort of feel like I want to do this and going with that. So that was, that was that really um, just seemed like something I wanted to be able to do um, to get up on a stage and play with some people and, you know, us all have fun. And that's kind of, I think we've mentioned this before. That's kind of, I think where me and you differ a little bit, um my like motivation is pretty much always like i like songwriting stuff but i kind of always think of it in the context of i want to be in a band yep versus i think yours is always from you know our conversations has always been like i want to write songs and release music yep i'd also love to be in a band but that's harder to do yeah well, and that's kind of we both want both right like i also want to write and release music but it's kind of like for me, that's a consequence of being in a band. Got you. So Yeah, so for me, it's like I don't have a band, but I'm not going to let that stop me from releasing music, if that makes sense. Right. So, yeah. And I haven't decided, like, I was, I think about this sometimes, like, if my band, like, totally fell apart, would I keep, like, I know I would keep playing, but I don't think I would 
write songs and make songs um, and record songs. I mean, I might, who knows, but I just think I would like probably put jam tracks on YouTube and play. (laughs) That's interesting. I kind of want to talk about that because one of the things, I like to have other musicians on this podcast and especially other songwriters because none of us, even though we might use the same tools, none of us approach songwriting the same way. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, songwriters I've spoken to, we at least all do it for very similar reasons, but I feel like you don't. And I kind of like to examine that because I find it fascinating. So here you are gathering up these guitar skills. You've decided that you want to be a decent guitarist or better than decent. Like you want to actually learn how to master the instrument. When did you decide to actually write songs? Was it after you had a band? Yeah. You know, I'd have like these little snippets and pieces of stuff and I'm like oh that's kind of cool but I never like really had any motivation to sit down and like actually turn this into a song getting that motivation to take these little pieces and make them into songs is really I think the hump for almost everybody like I think almost anybody who's played any amount of music you'll have these little snippets of things you did like came up with um and really it's like whether you put in the effort and and like you know craftsmanship in a way to make those in the song and what got me that point was having a band me like well i need we and i knew i didn't just and nothing to disparage people who are in cover bands but i knew what i wanted was to be in a band that did at least some original so it was like well nobody else in this group of people i have has written anything so i guess i need to take some of these little snippets and turn them into songs that's kind of the 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 motivation to get me to do the the work aspect of songwriting. Um, I think as far as like my inspirations and what's behind each song is probably similar, you know, as in you know wanting to express myself and feelings that don't quite fit exactly into just words you can say to people. Um, I think that's still there and true. But like I said, what gets me over the hump to like say, all right, I've got this riff and this one little melody, but now I have to write a bridge and I got to figure out the rhythm. I got to figure out how to tie these two parts together. Like that stuff's all kind of hard. And most songwriters don't love doing it. So like, it's like, where is your motivation to get over those? Um, And that's where that, so yeah, that's where I think it's a little different than you know, some songwriters is like, well, I got to write for a band. I think I was listening to an interview with Rich Robinson from the Black Crows, and he was kind of similar. He's like, you know, I write songs now, even though, you know, I'm a solo project. He was like, but I never would have started writing songs if I wasn't in a band with my brother um, and we needed songs to play. Necessity, the mother of invention. I, in this case, I think it's almost like necessity, the mother of work, because the invention part, like, that sort of lightning rod of inspiration. That's not the necessity part. Like the things in my songs that are like, yeah, that's kind of cool. That those usually just sort of came, you know, from playing the pure joy of playing and the pure joy of wanting to express yourself. The part that's not like sort of the inventive part, the sort of drudgery of songwriting. um, That's really where the necessity comes in. So are you motivated to, and for one of a less nerdy expression, uh, hone 
your craft as a, as a, as applies specifically to the craft and the art of songwriting? Like, in other words, um, or do you want to study the songwriting craft such that that annoying stuff gets easier for you eventually? Yeah, well, yeah. And, it, and by, I guess, hard, it's really more like sometimes you don't think it's as interesting to figure out how to come up with a bridge just because the song needs a bridge um, that works, you know, so... And yeah, I mean, I study songwriting all the time, but I studied songwriting before I ever even thought about writing songs. And that's just the music lover part of me, um, you know, and, and also just, I think my general personality, you know, even going back to what we we're talking about with baseball, I don't, if I'm into something, I don't want to just sort of passively take it in. I want to understand how it works. So, you know, I studied songwriting. I wouldn't have called it that, but I did you know, long before I ever started really playing or especially writing, um, you know, I'd be talking to, there's this guy from my hometown who's like, he's a fantastic piano player and he leads like this sort of yearly charity benefit, but he's like super into the Beatles. And we would just sit there and like talk about the nerdiest things about Beatles songwriting. Like, and I would even use musical terms and stuff, you know, like, you know, going here and yeah, they modulated up a perfect fourth or whatever. And we, you know, say stuff, you know, so yeah, I was studying all that. I think as long as I can remember period, like as long as I have memories, I can recall studying songwriting. Now where things changed maybe a little bit would be like, you know, reading books that are super mechanical about some stuff and chord substitutions and stuff like that. But I'm kind of almost able to separate that as like, I like reading about that just from an intellectual standpoint. And then it also helps me as well. Um, so yeah. Um, to me though, like the challenging aspects of song, like challenging aspects of songwriting aren't the, parts that are hard to motivate myself to do like you know i can write a bridge and it can be fine like what's you know what makes something truly great aren't those trudgery parts it is that's where you know getting a, a great melody right and you i'm sure know this as well as anybody i think we've even talked about this like that is kind of the magic thing Yep. Right. I mean, yeah, you can sit there on a keyboard and hammer out notes that are in the chords and scale and hope you run into something great, but your best melodies almost always just come to you. Um, and that's the hard part. Like, in a way, it's hard, but it's also not hard because you, I think you can work on it and just writing lots of songs, but you can't be like, all right, I want to make better melodies the only way to do it is just to do it a lot. One, you will get better at sort of hearing things, I think. And two, you'll just have more options to choose from. If you'd like sit there every day and try to come up with some sort of melody or, and a lot of times I think it's just as simple as like everything that comes to you recording in some way or another. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a long and rambling went a lot of different directions answers, but that's kind of my thoughts on advancing as a songwriter. 
lyrically, I almost, I think I, especially in the band I'm in now, um, I have to try to write less clever lyrics, I think at times, because my tendency will be to just sit down and come up with like, all right, I want to have this amount of alliteration, rhymes here and here, partial rhymes here and here to match up with this and that. And then I want to use like these kind of double meaning word and like, and then a lot of times I'm like, we're a rock band. I need to make this much more like just a straight, simple anthem type thing. So if anything, I think lyrically, I have to force myself to dial it back a little bit at times. Um, although in some songs it can work to just get the, you know, the more stuff. And then I think eventually I'll probably, I probably will do some stuff that sort of falls into solo project land just as well that's what sort of left over that didn't fit with my band i was just gonna ask if you were gonna scratch that clever lyrical itch by eventually doing something in a slightly different genre um yeah i mean the good thing about rock is depending on how you dress it up almost everything can work it might be like not the quote-unquote single but um so a lot can work there yeah i think once once i start getting enough songs written that we're not using almost all of them then that'll be kind of a thing to look at um And then it also, I think there'll come a point where I want to decide if I'm writing songs for other people, because part of it too, a lot of times is, you know, the genre I write in, a lot of it is, well, that's kind of how I sing and that's kind of how I play. Um, I was watching a John Mayer interview once and he was like, you know, sometimes I get, you know, X, Y, and Z about my songwriting is like, but my voice is the way it is. And that sort of guides a lot of the songs, you know, and you can take voice to be both, both literal and metaphorical there. My voice can literally sound this way when I sing and that sort of shapes you. And then also just my sort of viewpoint, so to speak, can kind of guide where things go. So, and writing for someone else is such a different, I think thing when it comes to that tell me about some of your influences they're kind of all it depends on what aspect of thing you know with your guitar playing style first yeah guitar playing um dickie betts from the almond brothers um is probably the biggest one um it's just kind of how i hear things coming out a lot of times are really just like hearing Dickie Betts play. Um, and then of course it comes out a little differently when I play it, but Mick Taylor from the Rolling Stones. I think those are my biggest influences in how I play. Now that's not necessarily, I mean, they are among my favorite guitarists, but I have a lot of guitarists I absolutely love, but I don't play anything remotely like them, partly out of just physical differences. And then, you know, partly just that's not kind of the path I took, but I still like to hear that um when i'm listening to music so yeah those i I would say those two and then there are a ton of like little ones here and there um and then um songwriting wise um rolling stones are a big one um and then 
it's hard to almost even separate the Black Crows from the Rolling Stones as far as songwriting goes, you know, because they have they do things so structurally similarly. Um, and and I'm just talking kind of music wise at that point. Um, lyric wise, I couldn't really say, and I'm sure I have them, and I just don't recognize I have lyric writing influences, but I can't like when I'm writing lyrics, it's just sort of what comes to me versus like, if I'm playing, I can kind of be like, yeah, that's definitely like influenced by this riff on can't you hear me knocking um, or whatever versus like songwriting. It's just like this lyric sort of came to me and it worked at the time. And then as far as like putting it all together, I think Tom Petty's like such a, especially it's, Tom Petty and Mike Campbell together, just so good at putting all the elements together into a song that works. I think he's probably like my favorite song craftsman. You know, the arrangements are always so spot on and are interesting, but still like leave the focus where it needs to be. Still have space, but, you know, have a lot of interlocking parts. Um, so, you know, kind of always come back to that. And then, um, you know, the Beatles, I think, you know, Lennon, that Lennon-McCartney dynamic, I think is always a really interesting to look one to look at. I try to consciously sometimes put in Radiohead stuff. My man. Um, and elements. It's tricky to get it to work right, though. Like, you know, it's one thing to say, like, yeah, let's have this sort of like almost Tom Petty song with the Allen Brothers like solo, and but then throw in some great, like, you know, it's trickier to get it to work than it is. But at from time to time, there's little pieces that does. Um, that single I just put out, there's kind of this like dreamy background guitar part. It's kind of almost like a sort of Radiohead type thing, you know, to have a sort of pad that the song sits in. But it also gets so out of the way at times you can, you know, it definitely doesn't feel like a Radiohead song. But so that's kind of how I put it all together. Would you like to uh, play the single for the listeners? Girl 
thank you again to Franklin for joining me. His departure was just a little bit unexpected, but fear not, dear listener. At some point, I will have him back. We will talk more about probably music and baseball. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. Would you be so kind to leave a review or a like or subscribe on the podcast listening location of your choice? I'd appreciate that very much. 